If you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 13. Earlier this week in the weekly email, I told you I was kind of continuing our series on the prophecies that were fulfilled from the Old Testament, but today I was going to focus on the New Testament. And there's so many different things I could focus on. So um, when I was trying to put this together, I, uh, I was looking for, again, you know, what's something that maybe you haven't heard over and over and over again, and yet is still relevant to where you are. And um, what I came up with, some common misunderstandings surrounding Jesus and his life during Holy Week. And um, so I wanted you to understand that these are common misunderstandings. One of them actually came out as a result of a conversation I had this week. The others I already had in here. So know that these are things that you may already know, but everybody may not know, and you may need to hear them again. So the first one was that Jesus didn't understand what was happening. That Jesus is basically a dupe in all of this. He doesn't know that he's gonna face, what he's going to face and the crucifixion and that kind of thing. And it's actually a common belief, especially among people who struggle with the idea of fully human and fully divine. That they can't in their own mind reconcile how can God come down, become fully human, and yet still be fully God. And so because they reconcile, can't reconcile that in their own mind, they come to this place where Jesus didn't really understand and know what was going on. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, it says, On that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go, tell that fox, referring to Herod, not a literal fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Ooh, a little foreshadowing of what's to come, people, right there. Good writing right there. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, he's out in the Galilean um, countryside, and he knows that in order for his death to be fulfilled the way it's been said in the Old Testament, he has to die in Jerusalem. And so he begins to set up things. And he says, go ahead, tell Herod, It's not going to be today, it's not going to be tomorrow, but that third day. He knows what's happening. He's fully aware that his time is coming. And though the people don't understand what he's saying to them, they think it's a metaphor, they think it's an idea, they think it's a concept. He's telling them, I know what's going to happen. And he walks boldly into Jerusalem shortly after this. He doesn't cower or shy away from. We're going to talk about that next week. That when he walks into Jerusalem, he knows exactly what is coming. That final week, he is not dumbfounded. He's not like, this is the greatest week ever. Even when he's walking in during the triumphal entry, he knows what's happening. And too often times, we want to think, well, Jesus didn't understand what he was getting in for. No, he fully knew and he was fully aware. And in spite of that, he still says, I'm going to go. It would have been really easy for him to flee into the countryside as his human side. It would have been really easy for his godly side to strike Herod dead right then. But he doesn't. He says, not today and not tomorrow, but I'm going to enter that city. And when he does, which again we're going to talk about next week, and I don't want to ruin all of next week's message. It's a good one. You'll want to be here. He goes in knowing what's coming. And that's the difference between his 
divinity and his humanity. Because on our human side, we may know that something's coming, but we have fear and trepidation. He has no fear. He's not wanting to die. He's not a fatalist, but he's a realist. And the difference is, I've heard people talk about, well, Jesus was just, especially those who don't believe in his divinity, they just believe in the humanity, they see him as a fatalist because he knew he was going to die and yet he did nothing to resist it. So he intentionally became the martyr. No, he understood what God the Father had for him. When we understand what God has for us in our life, it's sometimes easier to put off the immediate gratification. When we understand that God is doing something bigger than just simply in me, it becomes much easier for me to say, okay, I may not like this season I'm in, but it's just that. It's a season. It's a rhythm of life. And God has something greater for me if I can weather through this storm. And if I really believe that God is who he said he is, and I really trust him, and I really hold to that, then the temporary of this world doesn't hold me back from the eternal of what he's promised. In other words, I'm going to face storms. Some of you remember, I've been here for, it's almost been six years, and five years ago, I got a cancer diagnosis. And I remember thinking, God, Honestly, I was thinking at that time, I hadn't even been here a year, and I was like, God, why did you bring me here to kill me? I don't know people here. At least that I stayed in Iowa, I'm only a few hours from my parents, more convenient for the funeral. That's how much faith I have. It was the whole thing, and all I, I went back to, right after I said it, right after I was in that moment of prayer, I, I, I was just struck. I don't know if it was God reminding me, or it was just my own recollection, but it was why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us? And I thought, what if this is just part of my journey to get me to the promised land that he's got for me? And what if I'm crying and shouting and complaining and whining and cursing God, and yet he's just saying, come on, Jeff, this is part of the journey to get you where I have promised I'm taking you. And too oftentimes, we get a few steps into the journey, and it is hard and we hit that wall. I'm going to tell you right now, a journey through the desert, not easy. And yet, that's what they did for 40 years to get where God had called them to. 40 years, entire lifetimes for some of the people. Because it tells us, none of them who were standing at the gates of the promised land, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, none of them got to go in. None of them that had been adults who had the choice the first time and chose to reject it. We had to wait till they all died off. The second thing that I've heard, and this is actually a, a very popular one in the church today, is that Jesus wanted to die for you. I touched on this just briefly last week. Jesus did not want to die. He was willing to die, and there's a difference. Wanting to die says, well, I'm tired of being here anyway. I'm done. Jesus was willing to die. And the difference is, wanting to die means he'd given up on everything that was here. But if you look, he never gave up on his disciples. He continues to preach to them till the last night of his life. And after the resurrection, when he appears to them, he continues to empower and preach to them, never judging never condemning, always offering hope. Jesus was willing to die. 
Had he wanted to die, he wouldn't have prayed this in the garden. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Henry Nouwen wrote a book called Can You Drink the Cup? And it changed my entire perspective on how we do communion and why we do communion. Because for so long, the church said, if you're worthy, you can come and take. And Jesus looks and says, you're not worthy, you'll never be worthy, come and eat with me. And it's a subtle difference, and that's my paraphrase. Now it is much more eloquent. But I just started reading the book again this week because I was emptying boxes of books trying to decide what to keep and what to get rid of. And I pulled it out, and I stopped in the middle of my emptying and sat down in my garage and just began to read it to remind myself, can I drink this cup? I'm not worthy, and neither are you, but you're welcome. And yet he says, if there's any way that this can pass from me, if there's any way I don't have to die, and you can still redeem humanity, I don't want to die. But if there's no other way, not, well, I want to, he says, I'm willing to. Don't get caught up in the idea that Jesus wanted to die. Because wanted to doesn't equate the willingness. And the willingness is, I love them so deeply. I love them so deeply. I'm willing to give up my life. Not, I just want out of here. I'm tired of this earth, and I'm tired of this brokenness, and I'm tired of this pain. Jesus was willing to die, and he weeps over his city. Luke chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left you to desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When it says you will not see me, it's not a physical seeing, it's a mental understanding of who he was. They didn't know who he was. He was a rebel rouser. He was a problem maker. He was a preacher. He was maybe a prophet. But mostly he caused us difficulty in our authority in the temple. But they didn't see who he was. They didn't know and they didn't understand. And he looks and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you together as a, as a hen gathers her chicks because I love you. I wanted to pull you in, and yet you didn't understand who I was, and you rejected me, and yet this is where he knows he has to go to die. One that came up this week uh, at a conversation of, did Jesus give up his divinity when he dies on the cross? And the person said, well, I thought you said this. And I said, if I did, then I misstated. But here's what I believe. Jesus never ceases being God, nor does he cease being fully human until post-resurrection. Then his humanity is no longer there. The earthly human dies. The spirit rises up. Now, if that's not how you understand it or see that, that's okay. You and I, we can still worship together. We can still have lunch together, still be friends, and still all attend the same church. Don't let that be a hill you die on. But I'll say this. Jesus goes up on the cross fully human and fully God, and he doesn't surrender either. Because the redemption works when the death of God, the Son, is fulfilled through the resurrection. 
So the redemption part does not come because they killed him. The redemption part comes through the resurrection. The blood sacrificed without his resurrection is a great thing that he was willing to do for you, but it then doesn't offer you the redemption. People say, well, why didn't God use an animal as that eternal sacrifice? God, if he wasn't so cruel, could have done anything. Here's the difference. He had to have the resurrection because that is what raises us up into life with Jesus. And now I'm preaching theology, and some of you are getting real squirmy and uncomfortable, and that's okay. Because you're like, no, I learned in Sunday school when I was seven. That's okay. I'm telling you, it's okay. But I want to make sure that I clarify. Jesus does not give up his divinity or his humanity on the cross because he takes both into the grave with him. And it tells us that out of the grave, he's not the same. And we know he's not the same because his disciples don't recognize him. The women who come to the to the graveyard, they ask for directions as to his tomb as he's standing there talking to them. And then they realize, and then they understand, and then they know. But that's not because he lost his divinity. They weren't used to seeing it was because his humanity had changed, and now he's fully the spirit of God, and that doesn't mean he doesn't appear in bodily form. He literally tells Thomas, touch my hands. You don't do that if he's strictly spiritual. But he is God in bodily form post-crucifixion. So in order for him to offer redemption, he had to maintain that divinity and that humanity because he can't simply be crucified as the spirit. He has to be crucified as the human. He has to shed real blood. And from what we understand of spirits, they don't have real blood. From what we understand of spirits, they instantly appear in a room because it tells us Jesus. Suddenly, he's in the midst of a locked room and they're confused. And yet we also know he couldn't have just been spirit post. He has to be in bodily form because what is he doing when the disciples come in? He's cooking. He's on the beach making them breakfast. So can I fully explain all of this? No. And when I try, it starts to get weird allegorical or it starts to be dumbed down. What I want you to know is Jesus is fully God and fully human. He doesn't give up either on the cross. But his resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, and yet he still appears in bodily form. So how does all that work? I don't know. But I'll tell you this much. It's supernatural. It's from God. And what a beautiful picture. So here's a few keys for us to better understand Jesus in this. When he was willing to die but didn't desire death, that enables us to connect in a deeper way. Because how many of you want to do exactly what Paul says and says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do, and I desire to kill the flesh, and yet I keep sinning? Can anybody else relate to that? (laughs) Jesus was still fully human, and yet he didn't sin because he's also fully divine. He saw the whole picture of the kingdom as greater than one single event. And we see that in Luke 17, verses 20 through 25. It says, Now, when he 
was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them and he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Verse 23. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part of the heaven shines to the other part of the heaven, so also the Son of Man will be on his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In other words, stop chasing people when they say they've got the solution and the answer. I read something this week that talked about how finally a particular church had it right and all you other churches that are copying, and this was this week, and I shared it with my wife, I was like, yes, because after 2,000 years of history and the church arguing and trying to figure it out, finally somebody has the truth. <laughs> thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of denominations and leaders and everything else that have created their own movements, their own whatever, finally we have somebody who's figured it all out. And I said, the saddest part is, I said it's full of arrogance and it's full of deception. Because they've lied to themselves enough to believe it, and they're arrogant enough to tell other people to follow what they're saying. It was a criticism, actually, of the way the church celebrates Easter, and that if you guys would understand how it's to be celebrated in mourning, then. And I said, yeah, because what we need is more churches saying, we're not going to do anything that connects with the community and has a community involvement aspect. You know what? Is the perfect time for an Easter egg hunt during the morning after our Good Friday service? Probably not in a sense of grieving and mourning, but probably according to a community calendar of when people are going to come for an Easter egg hunt. Yeah, because try to do one three weeks after Easter, your turnout won't be nearly as good. (laughs) For me to invite people to Easter, you know the best time to do a community outreach? Like the day before, within a week of it. Because people have short memory spans and people are busy And that might just make someone go, you know, I don't know about all this church stuff, but I'd be at least curious enough to find out. I might show up and see what happens. Remember, it takes the average person being invited 11 times before they'll show up to church. It takes somebody six times attending the same church, typically before they'll feel like, yeah, I feel good there or I feel safe there. And then you go, what? No, I came the first time. The first time I came to the church, I got saved. And then the very first time I went to that church, I knew it was right for me. So then imagine the average, how you've blown the curve. Way to go. That means I've got to work that much harder to bring people in. The kingdom of God is not over here or over there. The kingdom of God is within you. And the kingdom of God is completed upon Jesus' return. And up until that point, we strive, and I talk about kingdom all the time. I want to create, not the largest church, but I want to create a church that impacts the community because I want to see the kingdom of God expanded. I want to see people that don't know Jesus come into a relationship with Jesus. Not into a relationship where they follow Jeff's theology, but into a relationship where they may even say, Jeff, I don't understand this, or I don't agree with you on this. And I go, oh, that's okay, we don't have to agree on everything. Because the beauty is, after thousands of years, 
tens of thousands of years of people searching to know God, I'm not arrogant enough to claim that I have finally found the solution, so listen to me. What I'm going to say is, there's so much we don't yet know, and isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that we have a God who can't be contained or fully comprehended by your human mind? And the point at which you think he can be, is it really God or is it something I created in my own image to make me happy, that agrees with my political point of view, that agrees with my social economic point of view, that agrees with me and who I am in America? Or is God bigger than that? Oh, wow, that's, that's too deep. That's, I don't want to hear that, Jeff, because that takes away what I like. God desires relationship with us, not simply so that we are forgiven of our sins. And this is where the church as a whole, I don't refer to this church, I mean the church as a whole, got this wrong. And again, I'm not saying, especially if you were one of the people who came to Christ because of the hellfire and brimstone messages. I heard those still in the, 60s, or in the 70s when I was growing up, and I know they were big, 50s, 60s, 70s. People were scared to go to hell and knew the bomb was going to drop and knew that at any point it was all going to be done, so I better get right right away. The problem is, a theology and a relationship with God based on that, that's the relationship with a father that's an abusive father. It doesn't mean you didn't respect him, but you certainly didn't trust him and you didn't learn to love him. You might have done exactly what he said because you feared. But when we have a relationship that's built on, I want a relationship with you, then I can begin to experience the love that he has for me. And once I've experienced that love, I can share that with others. I can share that and I can let other people see the real me and be vulnerable and be transparent knowing that I'm imperfect. Jesus offers us hope, not when we force ourselves to change, but when we allow the Holy Spirit to come in and work through us. Heard a sermon this week that somebody sent me on the evils of smoking. And it was not from 1954, it was from three weeks ago. And they said, and this is a person who wasn't, who's not necessarily in the church anymore, and their thing was, and this is why I don't like the church. And my first thought was, or my first reaction was, come on, I've never once in my life done that to you. Should you smoke? Probably not. It's probably not good for your health. But do I care if you do? Absolutely not. Should you do A, B, or C? I don't know. I'm not your conscience. You know who you need to talk to? The Holy Spirit. Should we love people? Absolutely. I can find that in Scripture. Should I give of who I am? Absolutely. Should I give of what I have? Absolutely. I can answer those questions. But can I do this and can't I do that? When I was a youth pastor, kids used to say, can I go to this movie? And I'd be, I don't know, talk to your parents. But do you think God's okay? I don't know. You know what I do know? Is ask yourself this. Is it going to benefit and lift up my soul? And if not, then you make the decision. Because at the end of the day, what movie you go to, what music you listen to, what party you go to, I'm going to go to this party, but I'm not going to do anything bad. That's between you and your parents. I am not your parent, nor am I God. You know who I am? I'm the guy who's supposed to point you and help you understand who God is. And not give you a bunch of rules and rituals, but what I am supposed to do is say, in here, in this, we can understand who God is and the very nature and spirit of God, and then we can let the Holy Spirit work in us. And most of the time, when people are asking me that, they've already made up their mind of what they're doing. They just want your approval. They just want you to go, it's okay. And what I always say is, I don't know. 
Can I do A, B, and C? The state says I can now do this. Can I do this? I don't know. Does it bring you life? Is it what the Holy Spirit would want you to do? Does it offer you hope for tomorrow? So I have three basic questions that I ask as a result of this message. Number one is, why are there so many misunderstandings of who Jesus is? So like I said last week, the C.S. Lewis model where he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Why, why do we make it, and I know that there are, are arguments against that. I read through all the arguments against that, of the, the principles of how it downgrades who he is, but Why? Why are there so many understandings of Jesus? Well, I understand that there's multiple reasons for that, but I think it's three things, basically. Assumptions. People make assumptions about who Jesus is. Number two, it's either bad teaching or teaching that tries to fit you into a box or fits Jesus into a box or both. And number three, it's lack of really knowing God because God reveals his son through his word. And when God reveals his son to us, it's never in a sense of condemnation. It's always in a sense of hope. It's always in a sense of there's forgiveness. There's hope for tomorrow. There's a promise yet to come. So how do we create a greater understanding and connection? Get to know God. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in the word. And people have said, well, how long should I be reading my Bible a day? I don't know. I don't know your reading level. I don't know how fast you read, how many words per minute. I don't even know where you're reading. Are you reading out of Leviticus? Like two. You're reading the Gospels? Get through them. Not saying don't ever read Leviticus, but good luck, people. (laughs) What I am saying is get to know God and get to know his word and stop looking for a right or wrong answer. Start really digging in there and seeing what it says. Get together with other people who are also believers, who don't believe they have all the answers, but who are willing to look for truth. And the third question I ask is, how does this affect my day-to-day life? Because I ask myself that every week when I preach. Does this affect anybody's life today? And here's how it affects mine. The more I know of Jesus, not just know about him, but know the reality of who he is, the more I desire him for my life, and the more I desire him for others. Sometimes I get caught up in the busyness of life and I miss opportunities to invite or bring or include somebody coming to church. I shared a statistic several years ago. Only 11% of lead pastors will ever invite somebody to their church. 11% in a given year will invite somebody to their church. If we're not willing to, why would I expect somebody else to? I'm the paid professional. We've got to be people not who see people as a target, to, I gotta get them, but that says, man, they're a really good person and I'd like to know them more. And once I know them, having a desire for them to have a relationship with the Jesus I believe in is a natural outpouring of that. And finally, know that you can know him. You can have that personal relationship with him. That personal relationship with God is best lived out in community because you really want to know and understand who God is, you have to do it in community, and people hate that. People want to be able to do their own thing how they want, when they want. They want to be able to say, well, I'm a believer, so I don't really even need the church anymore. And yet, that's not how God set it up. From the very beginning, it's not good that man should be alone. 
that's not even about marriage, and yet we want to make it about marriage. By the way, Adam and Eve, no record of them ever getting married. No wedding certificate, nothing. So it's not about marriage. It's about humanity being together. Which means if you're single and 60 and never been married, you didn't do it wrong. And I've heard people go, you missed out what God had for his perfect plan for your life. I can't think of a more destructive thing to say to something, somebody, you stupid idiot. I just want to hit people. That is not true. That is not true, and that is a lie. And if you chose to get married, great. And if you chose not to, great. But when God says it's not good the man should be alone, he means get in a community of people, not go get married. If you want to be married, be married. And if you don't, I'm, well, I mean, let's not just all divorce each other this week. Let's, maybe I better be careful how I say that. If you don't, just don't. No, that's not what I'm saying. But it's okay to not be married, okay? And you're no less in God's eyes. And so understand, God desires for everyone to be in community. And community is imperfect. And community will let you down. And community will hurt you. And at your most vulnerable time, they may not be there for you. Because they're human and they're learning how to do it. They say one of the worst things you can have happen as a pastor is to lose a spouse or child because the people in your church, you've pastored them for years and they don't know how to pastor you. And one of the things you've got to understand is most people, if they're not pastors, they don't know how to pastor somebody. They'll be thoughtful, they'll be considerate, but most of them will just avoid you because they don't know what to do. And so over and over and over again, you see pastors who go through tragic times who say, Nobody was there for me. And I always want to go, you're right, because that wasn't their job. They weren't trained to do it, and they don't understand it. So take the kind gestures they did and understand that was them trying to fulfill what you do, what you were paid and trained to do. I spent eight years of between college, my master's degree, and my post-master's stuff that I studied. I spent eight years to get here. Not that I'm, I know some of you guys are way smarter than I am. I don't doubt that. But we can't expect people to always know how to pastor us when they're in a community with us. They're going to blow it. It's your birthday and they didn't send you a card. It was your anniversary and they didn't even say happy anniversary. It was your whatever and nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. I was going through a tough time. I was in the hospital and didn't even get a call. You know why? Because we're a group of imperfect people and yet God doesn't say, hey, just get together with a group of perfect people. He says, get yourself in a community. And you know what you do? You teach people how to treat each other. And you teach people what you need and how you can experience that. So that hopefully the next person in your group that's going through something in their life, there's people that come around them to do that. Because it's a lot easier to quit and just go worship at home and close the church down and it would save me some money and it would be a lot easier but it's not what God called us to. And so people are telling me all the time, the church is failing, it's not meeting, it. it's not doing what it's supposed to do, it's not meeting its job. Why do we even have church anymore? And I go, because we're called to be in community. And it's hard. And that's what Jesus looks at and he says, this is what I want for you. I want you in community with a bunch of imperfect people so that you can learn to understand more and more of who I am. God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you for the fact that you have a plan and a purpose for each of us, and I thank you that you were willing to lay down your life. 
You didn't have to. You were willing to. You didn't want to die, but you were willing to. May that ring true and may that be evident in who we are and in how we live. In your name, amen. Communion is a time when I invite everybody to the table. I invite everybody to the table not because you're worthy, because you're not, but neither am I. I invite you to the table because Jesus is worthy. And so today, as you take communion, I want to let you know we have what we call an open table, which means anybody in the room that wants to take communion can. You're not required to. It doesn't equal your salvation. It doesn't make you a better Christian if you do or don't. It just means you are invited. You are invited to come and take and be served with us. You are invited to be a part of this as part of our church, whether it's your first time here or you're here every week. I invite you and I welcome you. If you uh, are unable or either physically or just emotionally and spiritually, you can't, you go, I can't walk that divide between where you are and where I am. Tracy will come and serve you. If you need gluten-free, Tracy has the gluten-free. So you're welcome to, after she served those who can't come forward, she will come back to the middle. So if you need to be gluten-free, just come down the middle. Otherwise, we'll just kind of start at the back, work our way to the front, and come and be served. Again, if you raise your hand if you need Tracy to come to you so she can see you.
just knowing who he is, it's a relationship with him. I just desire for people to have that. I want people to experience that. I want that to be real in people's lives, not because, oh, it grows my church, or oh, it contributes to my world system of belief. It's that I believe that Jesus is who he said he was, did what he said he was going to do, and is still to come back. And I want people to have that hope, that hope that he brings. And that's what I want for you in your life too. Father God, I thank you for the congregation gathering place. I pray for peace in our lives this week. Peace in our lives. Let us know you more. Let the busyness and the distractions for a moment in time get moved aside and I feel a genuine connection with you. And I thank you and I praise you for everyone in this room today, Lord. Let them know that peace. Let them know that you're Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. Have a great week. Hope to see you on Saturday at the workday or sometime soon.